And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Welcome, it is Wednesday, and we are live from the bunker. Jason Hodd here, I am the editor of sci com, and today we have a special guest. A couple of uh, real quick bits of business ahead of time. Uh, a notification alert, just to let some of you know, we found out yesterday, or on Monday, that uh, YouTube is going to be phasing away the notifications by email. So those of you who uh, rely on those to know when we put new content out, uh, we're going to have to make some adjustments. So uh, just something there to keep in mind. Yesterday we had Declan Finn on. Tomorrow, Rhonda Udaly. Today, however, we have as our special guest... Winner of the Hugo Awards five times. Winner of the Nebula Award five times. John W. Campbell Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. The Locust Award. The Risling Award. The World Fantasy Award. The James Tiptree Jr. Award. The Pegasus Award. He is the 27th Damon Knight Grand Master for the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. He is in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. And most importantly, he has a purple heart. Joe Haldeman joins us today. Welcome, sir. Hi. And <clears> first, <throat> what the Pegasus Award is. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and let me first say, uh, as I don't, I don't get too many opportunities to do this uh, with with too many people who have served, but I do want to thank you for your service to our country, sir. That is, uh, that is a whether whether it was you know you were drafted or chose to serve you you put in the time and we, and we do appreciate that well i was drafted and chose not to run away to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> all right we are 80 days without incident here at the bunker so no uh no is injuries it, it is a it is a count uh no no trips to the hospital the er or or, or anything like that so we're doing pretty well here um <laughs> i start off with all of those accolades uh to to set up this one question because i see a lot of younger creatives who talk about imposter syndrome who, who feel like you know am i really doing this for real and you knew early on that you wanted to be a writer that was the thing that was your thing and it was that and nothing else for since the beginning. Is there, looking back on everything, has there been points in time in your career when you kind of look at this and, and feel a little bit like it's a surreal experience? Like, I'm really doing this, right? And people really like what I'm doing. They're giving me all these awards. I, I, is imposter syndrome a recent thing for people, or is this something that other that people have gone through all the time? I think you can find references to it, not of that name, but uh, in autobiographical writing back to uh, the Middle Ages. 
That is, ever since we've had the, the notion of a person who is, quote, famous, unquote, you've had the emotional mirror image of the person who wonders whether he really is famous or whether this is just an accident. Uh, I guess I've got some of that. Uh, but then I don't, I don't put a lot of value on being famous. And it's, it's always kind of silly. I mean, I know too many famous people who are worthless and many worthwhile people who are uh, unknown. So, Was that ever a, a consideration when you first started this? You, you talk about in, in other interviews, you've talked about, you know, having that urge to write at an early age and yeah. deciding you were going to do it. Was there a plan or a goal or a, a, a particular motivation? Because you got married uh, early on, you you went to Vietnam, you started your writing career, and that was your your path was fairly much set in your mind, is what I'm gathering from from listening to other Actually, interviews. It goes back farther than that because before I was even married, uh, I think I knew I was going to be a writer from. 11 or 12 years old. Uh, ever since, actually, you want to go back to when I started reading as a child. I remember being, I was just reminded this morning of sitting there in grade school with a Bullfinch's mythology or Edith Hamilton's mythology and going, my God, this is the most wonderful thing in the world. What, it, what would it be like to create something like this and it just i started writing comic books and then stories and then i started getting published and i just there was no big uh turning point i always knew i would be published and i pretty much knew i was going to make a living of some kind writing uh I guess I'm, I was a little surprised that I didn't wind up writing comics early on there. And, yeah. and then another surprise was that, that I wound up being a literary writer rather than a commercial one. Which, you know, I'm always, I've always been a commercial writer, but uh, the definition of what I'm doing changed because the world changed. Now, is, is yeah, a lot of people focus on the forever war uh, you know a lot of people talk about that that's the that's the the groundbreaking that's the one that redefined space opera we hear all of these things about it but for you it's a very personal book it is you know it is so so much of your experiences in vietnam informing the story of that was that just it happened to be that way or is it something because you had already done sort of a, a, a direct nonfiction account of sorts and then you came in and did this one was the the incorporation of your Vietnam experiences just a natural organic decision to do that or was it a specific I'm going to take what I what I saw in Vietnam and turn it into a story for other people to experience. Well, speaking generally, I think uh, I knew from the very beginning that the way you write is to refract your life into fictional form and type up what's going on in your mind. And if something interesting happens to you, of course, it goes in there. 
And I think the most dramatic thing that ever happened to me was getting drafted and becoming a soldier, which is never was never in my plans. Just something that happened to me like a childhood illness. But uh, there you go. I mean, that's uh, that changed the direction of my career. Uh, will I, nil I, that's just what happened. Now, we have a question in the chat from Robert. Did you enjoy the bullfinch stories of the 12 peers of Charlemagne? And do you have ideas on why they're not part of popular culture like King Arthur and his knights? That is a more academic question than I'm prepared to answer <laughs> because I don't have the background, not because I think it's a silly thing, but it's sure. probably quite a good question. If I knew the answer, I would, uh, I would blurt it out just <laughs> with no regard to consequences. <laughs> well, and and it and it's interesting that you know you you mentioned you know King Arthur and his knights and and Bullfinch and there are certain things that stick with us in fiction that the authors don't necessarily intend to. We see it a lot with the comic books now with the Fantastic Four and Superman. Nobody nobody ever figured that Superman would go eighty years, for example. Right. <laughs> you know, you have these novels that. There, we just wrote them. You know, we didn't intend for them to be these groundbreaking, genre-changing events that last for fifty or sixty years. Did yeah. you ever? Did it ever occur to you any time in the last fifty years that the Forever War was such a seminal work that oh my, what what kind of a responsibility is that? I mean, did did that ever kind of weigh on you at all that you changed the genre no not until after it had happened and in fact i think it happened a long time before i was aware of it uh i'm you know like many people who do this for a living although it's seems contradictory i'm fairly modest and i don't believe all the uh all my own press and kind of you know this is what I do for a living. And basically it's you sit down with a fountain pen and make this long line. I mean, by the time you die, the line is dozens of miles long and it winds up having some significance to some people. Did you ever, uh, did you ever think that the forever war would last this long in terms of its longevity and, and its appeal to audiences? I mean, it still resonates with people who are reading it for the very first time now. Yeah, it's curious. No, I didn't. I did not say, well, I'm going to sit down and write a, a novel that will outlive me. Uh, nobody. Well, who thinks about that? I mean, some people do. Right. Uh, one hopes that one's work will survive at least long enough for old age. But uh, having stumbled into old age <laughs> without even intending, I, here it is. It's still in print after how many years? No, quite a few. Well, and I see, I see a lot of discussion online in social media, various different people that are debating the notion, the, the motivation. Are you writing the novel or are you writing the comic book to tell that story or are you writing it as your resume to try to get the, the movie deal? Uh, so let me, let me ask you this. Uh, Ridley hmm. Scott got the, got the movie rights to The Forever War a long time ago and we mm -hmm. haven't seen a movie. 
and and I don't you you're probably out of the loop on that as far as the production goes. But have you heard anything else about a Forever War movie adaptation? Is that is that dead in the water? Yeah, I don't I don't hear anything about it. I don't even speculate about it anymore. It has become less and less important as the years go by. And in fact, making a movie has become less and less important. I've done a movie and uh, really enjoyed it. But that's in my past now. So that's, you know, I've got other things to do. And that would be Robot Jocks. Yes, yes. Yeah. Robot Jocks. Love Gary it. Graham. Now, uh, one one uh, interview, one snippet that I ran across, you you mentioned the experience of of Robot Jocks, the adaptation, and I want to and I want to say it was Robot Jocks. It might have been the Twilight Zone adaptation. Uh, you have a baby, and somebody gives the baby brain damage. It, it was basically the experience of the changes of going through that process. Was it? You say you enjoyed it. What did you What did you like about it, and and what kind of challenges did that present? Because that was your first screenplay, was it not? Uh, yes. In a matter of speaking, it was my first. I mean, I'd done other shorter pieces here, here and there. Uh, you know, uh, there are so many aspects to that because it totally changed my life. But the fact is something you don't think about too much is that uh, making a movie is a hugely social thing. Uh, the guy who sits down and writes the script, he may just go on and do other things, but there are suddenly hundreds of other people involved and you may or may not be in touch with them. You may or may not uh, worry about them. You may not even care, but they're there nevertheless. And I rather care, and I'm rather interested in the process, although I'm no longer involved in it. Uh, it is integral to modern American feeling on so many levels. And, uh, well, modernity, whether it's American or French or, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, I, uh, movie making is real interesting. I think uh, quantum quantum mechanics is really interesting too, but it's hard to talk about it. <laughs> Most everybody has seen movies and has some sense of how they're made. Well, and you mentioned quantum mechanics. You have a background in physics, and your one of your hobbies is astronomy. Uh, yeah. The the space race being the way it is, is it good to see it coming back? How do you, oh yeah, definitely. I'm sure you've it's been cool. keeping track of all the SpaceX stuff and and what. No, indeed. Yeah. What would you? Yeah, and I, we watched the uh, all the space, all the launches and everything. Well, one we moved down to Florida to be near the launches and the Apollo program, and so we still go over to the Cape and watch them go up every now and then. What would you like to see coming out of the current space program? We've got Artemis is in 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 play. We've got the the probe, the Mars probe that just launched. The next five, ten years as a futurist, as somebody who dabbles, in, you know, does speculative fiction, where where are we headed, do you think? Well, five or ten years, short term. Uh, I guess we're headed toward a, a different kind of industrialization of space than we had thought. That is to say, it's uh, more subtle and it's more integrated with... Uh, the overall uh, integration of technology into money making, mm -hmm. uh, which is 
I rarely thought about the money-making part of space travel as a, as a kid growing up or even as an elderly person growing up. But it's there, and it's, uh, in fact, what we didn't think of in the old days was that it's, a, it's integral to the permanence of the endeavor. That is to say, the reason space travel continues to be important is that it makes a living for a million people, 10 million people. And, uh, and it is integrated into so much of our everyday life which is not something you think about as, as a space fan, as a science fiction fan. Right. But there it is, you know, it's very real. And in some of your stories, you've, you've developed, you've predicted uh, various different n- new uses of technology, drones, for example, uh, neural linking. Uh, I, I looked at a Reddit, ask me anything that you did a while back, and, and they were asking you about that, and you're, and you're like, well, you're just making something up that works for the story, and now suddenly you're seeing something in Science Magazine that somebody's actually working <laughs> on it. Yeah. And of course, with Star Trek, we've seen a, you know communicators become cell phones, and we've got the desktop PC, and, and you know, all of these different things. People are now trying to work on warp drive. Yeah. Well, you know, you predict enough things, and uh, some of them will come true, and the ones that don't come true, you just say, "Well, you know, I just made it up." <laughs> so. Well, you know, and so, you had to have a batting average that would be different. Yeah, there we go. Now, is it well? And some people would say, you know, we've predicted enough, and we've caught up to the predictions, and science fiction isn't relevant anymore. Would you think? Is there still? And I'm not one of those. I still think that science fiction has its place. Where does science fiction go from here as a genre? Because the technology it seems to be outstripping. The predictions and the projections. What what happens next? Where's where's the next big idea in in, in genre? Do you think? In genre, that's a good question because, uh, to in my mind, genre overlaps science fiction in various various directions. Uh, and it's funny that you should even that one should even think. What is genre? I mean, it's, that's just a way of making money, and it's how does what is its philosophical implications? Uh, they're not large like science fiction's philosophical implications. And yet, somebody who just walked in off the street would say, "What are they talking about?" I mean, <laughs> science fiction, phil- philosophy, and blah blah blah, and so forth. What nonsense! And you got to go. Well, you know, in a way, you're right, and in a way, you're so wrong, because. It's not as if we had planned to change the world or planned to predict the future or anything, any of those easily characterized things. But we did stuff that is that we still don't know the importance of. And some of the things that seemed important are becoming trivial or old fashioned. Well, that's okay too. Uh, I don't think that the real function of science fiction has been to predict the future. Uh, it's never been an important part of it, right? Most mostly, and, and for me, it's it's mostly a a way of doing some self examination. Is this where we are? Is this is this where we want to be? Where do we go from here? Yeah. And yeah. looking at the landscape of of the real world right now, um, you know, there's there's the dystopian future. It's, it almost feels like we're at a crossroads. We either you know we either have a dystopian future or we come out of it okay and things get better and and yeah well it's 
it, it's one of those it, right now it's kind of flip a coin and we'll see what happens really. yeah but well, i don't i don't think we should look at it as an either or thing no i think that uh for the foreseeable near future we're going to live in a sort of uh a diffuse mixture of uh, dystopia and utopia. And in a first approximation, if you're reasonably wealthy, reasonably white, reasonably educated, then you're going to get the utopia part. If you're reasonably black, reasonably uneducated, and, and so forth and so on, well, you're going to get the dystopia. And but one of the things that's wrong with America, okay, has been for about uh, 300 years, is that you can't choose which one you go into. Uh, the circumstances of birth put you in a, in a category that's hard to get out of. And I'm not a big social reformer or anything like that. I'm just stating an ob easily observed fact. Right. Now, politics has been... In part of the conversation uh, rather rather loudly when it comes to the Hugo Awards here over the last you know five ten years, yeah. Uh, some criticisms, some people saying, "Well, if I see a Hugo Award winner now, I know to avoid it," as opposed to you know twenty thirty years ago when it meant that it was superior craft. And I'm looking at the ballots recently. Um, this last one, you know, was just a, a couple of weeks ago in New Zealand. There were only 2,200 votes on the final ballot for the Hugos. Yeah. Uh, nominations was only 1584. The year before that, we only had 3,000 votes. Is, mm. are the Hugo Awards, is Worldcon still relevant to the, to, to science fiction literature? I mean, the Dragon Awards are here now. You've got the Nebulas, you've got the Saturns. And the Hugos at one point were considered the Oscars of science fiction literature, the preeminent one. And now it, in some circles, some comments are not so much. Are, are the Hugos still the Hugos? Are they still important? Well, they're moderately important. They're nothing like the central importance they had when science fiction was this much smaller phenomenon. I mean, when I was a kid, rather when I was a kid writer and just started out, uh, you know, 10 votes could really, really change the structure of the Hugos and the Nebulas as well. Uh, a small group of, a small group of specialists could shift the, uh, the whole thing. Uh, is that bad? You know, I'm not sure because you look back through this veil of history, which, uh, the way that you learn is also, distorted by uh, by the same forces that uh, that distorted history sure uh, yeah i uh, i'm reluctant to say that something is good or bad within my own field because i'm not disinterested uh, and even if i were disinterested in a uh, in a monetary or a practical way I am, I am so firmly embedded in science fiction that I don't, I wouldn't know how to extract uh, myself and give you some sort of a reasonable opinion. Right. Well, it seems it seems that 
Yeah, and and people have pointed out there have always been battles between groups with regard to the Hugos. You go all the way back to the Futurians, for example. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, but it it seems like some of the the conflict in historical terms has been more along the lines of what constitutes science fiction. What what makes a story fit that category of science fiction or fantasy whereas now it feels like in some in some cases the argument is who should be allowed to write science fiction and i know it's not that way for everybody it's you know certain certain groups and factions and you've got all of the neener neener back and forth has has a has there been a cultural shift because you, as you mentioned you know science fiction used to be a very small niche not too many people were were paying attention to it. It was the pulp novels. It was the dime store stuff. You know, you had your monthly magazines like Asimov's and Astounding and Amazing Stories and all of that. Now it's gone mainstream. You've got all of these movies. You've got the Marvel movies and the and the DC movies and Star Wars and Star Trek and all of that. Has that cultural phenomenon changed the genre changed how per people perceive the genre do you think oh certainly it has uh, <clears throat> i mean radically from a from a whole world standpoint you find uh, a lot of people who think that science fiction is a very important part of their world uh would see me as a, a real relic I'm, I'm i'm just a white guy a techie guy and what do I know about reality at all? And I've got to say, well, stick around, kid. <laughs> Find out about reality. But uh, well, but I can't say they're wrong. I can't say that uh, they're prejudiced. We're all prejudiced. Uh, which is not just a cop-out. I mean, we always have to understand we're looking at the world through a series of filters. Right. and be ready to subtract the effect of them. Now when you're when you're when you're crafting a story, are you are you hyper aware of your filters, of your prejudices or do you do you set all of that aside and sit there and say, "Okay, this is the story, these are the characters, this is what the character feels, this is where the plot goes." How much of your own and outside of the Forever War, which was your story, when you're making up something that's not you, how much of you is in those stories? I never think that way. You know, creating a story or almost anything literary, a poem, an essay, uh, is something that's so basic. It just, it's sort of, it's more like eating or breathing than it is like uh, painting a picture or, or doing a job or something like that. I, it's hard to explain. It's just something that one does. Uh, I write stories because I don't know how not to write stories. That's it. Now, when you're writing, uh, your world building, are you doing? Have you do you do a lot of research? Because you've got the astronomy background, you've got the physics background, you've got the science in your in your wheelhouse. Yeah. When you're doing it, all of this, does that, does that, do you have to go digging for more information? How much research do you do when you're doing your world building for these stories? 
You know, I do very little ahead of time. <clears throat> Except, well, with the exception that when I'm writing a novel, I may know that I'm going to have to look up some organic chemistry in order to fill out this character and the things that he or she is working on. Uh, no, I'm interested in science, so I keep up with it because it's a hobby. I'm just what I do. And so the things that I write tend to follow the things that I'm reading about. Uh, it's not a rational process at all. Uh, you know, I, when I'm interested in oriental politics, then there will be oriental politics in my, in my story. Things change according, as much as anything, it's according to what I'm reading at the time. Right. Because that will work me over. The story I'm working on will, will tend to take on the, the appearance of the things I'm reading about. Now, you've mentioned being influenced by, you know, James Blish, Alfred Brester, Heinlein, Harry Harrison, Asimov, all, all of the great names and, and the well-known names uh, as you were growing up reading these. Are there current authors that have caught your attention that you're reading a lot more than others? Are there? Or do you have any modern favorites now? You know, I I have to admit I don't. <coughs> excuse me, I don't read that much science fiction. I mean, I read on the top of the what floats up uh, out of the science fiction universe. I, I tend to look at the Hugo and Nebula winners, and uh, basically, I've I got a have dozens of books coming through all the time, <clears throat> and basically, I I pick up a book, and if I I like it after the first five or six pages, I keep reading. If not, I'll pick up the next book and, and read that, which is uh, very lazy and uh, does not do justice to the field. I mean. Uh, I know in my own experience that many books I've adored, I didn't like until I'd read for a day or two. But there you go. I mean, uh, I'm as lazy as the next guy. I have a theory that a lot of books, you can get a sense of whether or not you're going to like it, whether or not you're going to finish it by about the fourth chapter or so. And uh, it was it was one of those things because I, I run into that same problem where, you know, I have we have all these all these books in the pile for the reviews that we do. And there's yeah. only, you know, there's only so much time in the day and your attention is divided among, you know, a thousand different things at once. And you have that culling of a sort that you have to do to kind of go through. And I thought, well, you know, if I if I start this. And I get a sense by about the third or fourth chapter, whether, whether it's going to be worth the time or not, then okay. Yeah. And it sounds like you've got a similar kind of process there where it's, you know, it's got to grab your attention. It's got to hold on. What... Yeah. I have, I have to admit, I'm not as patient as you. I rarely look at chapter four if I didn't like chapter three. <laughs> so what, what kind of things grab your attention? What do you like to see in a, in a story? If you're reading it and it's not anything that you've written, you don't have anything to do with it, I just want to, I just want to read this as a fan. What hooks you? Good writing. But you know, in a, in a real sense, it's the other way around. It's what makes me stop reading. Mm -hmm. uh, as I say, I've got a lot more books around than I can read. 
And as soon as I hit something that makes me go, what am I doing here? You know, why am I wasting my time with this? Of course, that, that would be in the first few chapters. You think, oh, come on, I've got to read something else. Uh, you rarely get halfway through a book and say, oh, this is boring, and put it aside. <laughs> Although I have done that. You know, I, I have to admit, I, I can be a fickle reader. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I love, I just really, really enjoy the experience of reading a book when you're halfway through it and you're still loving it and the experience is growing and growing on you. Uh, that happens a few times a year. Uh, yeah, it last happened uh, actually with a book that I have to admit was not science fiction, but uh, uh, it was a, uh, a book of F. Scott Fitzgerald criticism. And you go, what? You know why? But, uh, you know, books about criticism, because I am a teacher and a writer and all that, they, they bore into me in a way that fiction can't, because I start following and criticizing the arguments and talking myself into, shall I read the next page? Shall I read the next chapter? And then finally, by the, by the time you're a third of the way through the book, you've got to finish it. <laughs> you mentioned teaching. You've been an adjunct per professor at MIT. Of mm -hmm. creative writing. Where are you teaching now? Are you are you doing anything with that now? Nothing regular. I mean, if they ask me to come teach something, I'll do it. Uh, Sci-fi snob in the chat asks, "What is Mr. Haldeman working on now? What what are you what are you currently involved in right now?" Well, the only uh, I've only got one long piece. I'm not sure whether it's going to be a novel or a novella, uh, but. Uh, I know it will be at least oh, 80 or 100,000, uh, 80 or 100 pages. Uh, and it's a story that I started actually several years ago and then picked up again a few months ago and thought, well, hell, I'll just work on this. Uh, doesn't really have a title right now, but it's, uh, I guess I'm calling it uh, A Woman of Means. And that might be the way it turns out. But that's not, that's not a very provocative uh, science fictional or fantasy title. Sure. But, but it's what, which, what she is, because she's a woman who seems very ordinary. But in fact, she's a mysterious and quite powerful creature within her society. And once this is done, uh, I mean, have you talked to anybody yet about where it would be published? Is this something that would be serialized or self-publishing or, or? Oh, I won't self-publish, but I'll, no, I'll just give it to somebody and they'll, they'll print it. I mean, I've, I don't have that problem. Yeah. <laughs> now you, you kind of, you kind of uh, hand wavy them the self-publishing. Do you think that's a, that's a viable model in this day and age for a lot of new writers to, I, to get established? And I understand that it is. I'm too old fashioned for it. I mean, to me, self-publishing is has always been something other people did. I mean, I would never criticize somebody for doing it because I know that an awful lot of wonderful works in science fiction and in general literature have, have come from self-publishing, you know, like Ulysses and things like that. You know? uh, but it's not my way. Uh, for one thing, you know, 
I don't. I have a very short-sighted view. I, professionally, I say, you get a contract. When there's some money in the bank, you sit down and write the book. When it's done, you hand it in and you get the rest of the money. And by that time, you've already got a contract going for the next one. And that's been my life for so long. But starting, I don't know, X years ago, I just don't need the money. I don't have to, I don't need the tension of doing the rat race anymore. So I write a book when I want to. And I don't have any, I don't have the problem of, is somebody going to publish this? Because somebody will. Now, there's been uh, a, not necessarily a resurgence, but I think there's been a growth in appreciation for tie-in fiction. And you've done some of that with Star Trek, uh, a couple of a couple of novels there. How did that deal come about? Did they approach you and they say, hey, you're Joe Haldeman. You've won all these awards. Do you want to write a Star Trek book? Or was this, you know, your agent thought it might be a good idea? How, how do those deals come, come together? Because it's not, you're not in your universe you're in someone else's universe now and that's yeah. that's got to put a whole new set of rules on on you i would i would think yeah that's true i mean i i never would have come up with it on my own but uh i was basically a deal you can't refuse and so i said uh okay see what it it was sort of 50 50 because i'm i'm sitting around and i'm about to i have several different things i could do for my I don't know, fifth or sixth or eighth books or something like that. And then uh, James Blish died. And Blish was a very important figure when I was a young writer. And a, a nice guy whom I knew slightly. And when he died, uh, it occurred to me that uh, he had just started the Star Trek series of novels. And I was writing to his editor on another matter. And I said, well, by the way, now that Jim's dead, who's doing the track? Uh, and he said, you are. <laughs> and so I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I did. But, you know, it's, uh, I realized after the first half of the first book that uh, that's not the kind of writer I am. I can't just keep cranking out stuff according to somebody else's pattern. Now the two that you did, uh, you you did two of them. You did Planet of Judgment, and then um, oh, what was the other one? World Without End. World Without yeah. End. Did those did, were the plots given to you then, or was this something that got decided a committee, or did they come up with a couple of ideas? We'll pick the one that we like. It was uh, I wrote uh, a story, you know, a plot outline, and sent it to them. And then they write it, they write back with suggestions. And I say, well, the hell with that and write my own. You know, <laughs> I just, I guess there are various patterns, but mine was not, I am not a collegial, obedient committee worker. I just am not. Because I write a book, I start with a stack of blank paper and end up with a book. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't denigrate people who work as part of a committee, but I've never been able to do that writing. I can do it for other things. I've been on academic committees. I've been all kinds of cooperative endeavors, but not writing books. Now I hear, I hear gay in the background. Let me, let me ask you a couple of questions here because not, not, not to put anybody on the spot, but I'm curious how she feels, how she felt about being a character in a book. Because it, it kind of feels like 
she was she was in your book. Yeah, she sang she sang like this. <laughs> <laughs> Has that been a source of energy, confidence, support? I mean, I would expect the you know the fact that y'all have still been married after all of this time. Yeah. And you coming out saying, I'm going to write books for a living. You know, some people <laughs> would kind of look askance at that and say, oh, really? You are. Yeah, um, well, it, it, from the very beginning. Uh, because I always wanted to write. And that was always going to be central to my life. But I thought that for a while there, I was going to be a scientist or a, uh, an astronaut. And so she was going to have to deal with being an astronaut's wife. Mm. And then when the space program went belly up for me, which was Vietnam, basically, I just said, well, I'll just, we, we decided I'd try writing and see what came down after a year or two. And if it didn't work out, I'd go get a job. And so far, you know, what, 50 years later, it's still working out okay. So <laughs> I guess I'll stick with it. What the heck? <laughs> and you have managed to do it without being on social media that much. That That's something that, you know, nowadays everybody's on all of them. I don't know. You've got Facebook and you've got the website, you know, joehaldeman.com. And you were doing uh, you were doing updates on LiveJournal for a while and sff.net. Uh, Those have gone away, essentially. Um, does... Does the marketing landscape, you know, pub the publicizing your stuff, do does that present a challenge? Or you just let somebody else do it now. You're, yeah, you're not even not even involved in any of that. I should say I'm not interested in it, but I'm I'm involved periodically when they come grab me, and I'll you know I'll I'll do it. I'm not reluctant to do it. It just uh, it's not really my strength. Mm -hmm. Now the convention stuff hasn't you know with with the current the current year situation i know that hasn't do you get out a whole a whole lot to conventions and in, in a in a normal year or or are you pretty much past that now in a normal year i'm trying to remember back to a normal year which would be a couple <laughs> years ago yeah uh we'd go out several times a year we'd go to conventions and gay and i travel a lot anyhow and basically we would pick conventions that would help pay for our travel. And so we'd just go do that. I mean, you want to go to uh, France, you find a convention in France and have them pay your way. And then once you're in France, you just hang around, <laughs> which is fine. <clears throat> is Do you still, after all of this time, is there anybody out there, you know, with, when people hear the word, you know, hear the name Joe Haldeman, or they hear Robert Silverberg, or they hear George R. R. Martin, or J.K. Rowling, or David Gerald, or Cat Rambo, or you know, any any of these, you know, N.K. Jemison, everybody has their fans, and you have those fanboy moments, those moments where you sit there and you just get really giddy because you're breathing the same air as these people. <laughs> do, do you have the? Do you have those authors that you're? like that you know you get excited because you get a chance to meet fill in the blank i can recall being that way but it's been some years since i felt that way about anyone yeah 
There are some writers whose lives I am curious about. But really, I just go, I call them up and say, can I drop by? And they, they say, yeah, or forget it. And I'm not, uh, I'm not typical at all because uh, I've been around for so long, I know just about everybody. And, you know, most of my social life nowadays, like everybody's, are kind of constrained. And I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And I'm not out trying to gather sexual conquests or new buddies or anything like that. Right. So, you know, I, I, uh, I, I'll tell you, I, I had this strange thing when I was a young writer. And I guess it was Robert Silverberg whom I wrote asking about something. And he said uh, something to the effect of, you know, we probably would like each other, but uh, at my age, I have a circle of trusted and close friends, and I rarely venture outside them because my time for social interactions is limited. And I said, oh, you know, okay, that's fine. But I, now I find myself in a situation like that. But I'm not, uh, I don't shut off myself from other people. And I, you know, I, I have a lot of time on my hands, uh, paradoxically, because I don't, uh, you know, I don't have book contracts to fill and all these appointments to make and everything like that. I just take it a day at a time. And uh, so try to keep life simple. Now, have you had the opportunity in the in this time where we're all just kind of sitting around at home? Have you had the opportunity to do more interviews and conversations like this? Have, have the requests come in? Well, you know, now everybody is is sitting. Yeah. Are, are, is there more are there more people coming in saying we'd like to talk to you about about your work? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It happens every now and then. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, quite quite often actually, which is fine. I mean, as I say, it's not as if I'm working on my trilogy and uh, can't spare the time. I'm gonna say, you know, somebody wants to have an interview or something. I say, sure, or give me a call. You've mentioned before uh, those days where if you're not writing, you've got the itch to write. Do you have those days where uh, painting is the same way? Because you're you do that, you do some art. Is that a is that a daily part of your routine too, or? Yeah, it's just uh, it's just something I do every day, uh, and it's not something that I have scheduled. And say, oh, I've got to work for two hours today on that. Or something. I was just drawing uh, <laughs> when you called. I just I just drew a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, doesn't that happen all the time? <laughs> Absolutely. But this dinosaur is uh, after an ice cream cone. And it appears to be pistachio. I don't know why I thought <laughs> a green dinosaur would eat blue ice cream, but I, that's what he wanted. So who am I to say? <laughs> well, and your, and your artwork has been on, on public display. Have you published any, any collections of your art? Have you ever thought about doing anything like that? I mean, it would be something uh, different, but it's still a, a Joe Haldeman book, and I, I would imagine yeah. there'd be interest in that. 
Well, if somebody was interested enough to come up with a contract, I might do it, but I've, nobody has. So it's not something I want to initiate because it's a, a different world and I don't know the rules and I don't have the contacts and so forth. Right. And we mentioned uh, uh, Forever War, the movie. Uh, we've got this proliferation of streaming services now. Brave New World just hit uh, the Peacock uh, streaming service over to NBC. If someone... Uh, like a Netflix or an Amazon were to come to you and say, "Hey, we want to do the Forever War as a miniseries. We want to do it as a as a, a streaming or a Netflix original." Would you be open to something like that? Oh yeah, sure. And who would play you? <laughs> <laughs> Me? I'm not in the book. <laughs> oh, the uh, the main character. Well, William. Yes, not you, yeah. but you. Yes. Um. You know, I don't know current actors that well. I think John Wayne would be good. <laughs> <laughs> Except he's kind of dead. You yeah. know, what can you say? Do you get people uh, asking you for advice on writing still? I mean, are people people come in and say, you know, what what would you tell? You know, it, it's one of those typical questions that that i generally tend to avoid but if you've got people that are just starting out and we talked about the imposter syndrome when you talked about people especially now having the additional mental health challenges that come with being in quarantine and the lockdown and this you know the pandemic and everything are there is there any life experience advice from Joe Haldeman for these new writers, for these people that are setting out to do this kind of thing. What, what would you tell someone who comes in and says, I need to know what's the secret? Mm. <clears throat> well, for one thing, it'd be rather presumptuous because it's been so long since I was a free agent in the, uh, you know, publishing worlds. It would be uh, my, my advice would be, you know, have a good quality of parchment and grind your own ink. <laughs> grind your own ink, otherwise never black enough, you know. <laughs> uh, most of what I would uh, advise people would be hopelessly old-fashioned. I don't know anything about uh, modern practices outside of print publishing. Right. You know, and print publishing, I don't have to worry about it. If I want a book printed... There are lots of people who want to print my books still. Um, so I don't know. Uh, and in fact, you know, it's a, it's kind of a weird thing to, to broach with an old man because uh, I don't have to make an income. I don't need to make a reputation. I don't need anything except to, uh, you know, get up in the morning and do what I want. Right. Which is... You know, very, very challenging. <laughs> Something we were talking about Monday night was uh, short fiction and, and the economy of scale and, and having to having to get to your point and tell your story in a, in a shorter amount of time and length. And, and you've done a lot of poetry. We talked about uh, we talked about that Monday night about how poetry can help with word choice with structure the spine of your story the economy of words and such uh does it feel like it, and we see kind of a resurgence maybe in short fiction it, it I, I i'm guessing there's still a market for that 
and and there is value to short fiction and would that would that be something that we need more of or it's just still just part of the overall landscape it just happens well there are <clears throat> i'm guessing a half dozen or so conventional markets for short fiction that is to say things that will take your story pay you a certain amount and, and print it and sell thousands of copies of course there are all these unconventional outlets which i think are more natural for younger people uh if i wanted to uh if i if i wrote a short story i could pretty much choose where i wanted it printed so i don't have a uh, any kind of a lifestyle pattern or anything i could do that i could advise anybody about uh if I wanted to write a short story, I could, I've got a notebook right here. I've got plenty of ink, and I just write a short story. Uh, for me, the problem is wanting to write a write something that I mean, I've I've written about eighty short stories. Why should I write another one? I mean, something really would have to occur to me. It'd be really special for me to. I actually pick up a pen and dip it in the ink and see what was going on. And when, when you mentioned, you know, being able to just, uh, I, I decide to write a story, I'm going to send to someone. What determines uh, it? Are there determining factors in who publishes your stories? Do you have particular favorites in terms of imprints, Delray, Tor, Bayon, any of those, or does it matter? Does it, does it depend on, what kind of story that you've done? No, most of my favorites are no longer exist. So, you know, if, if I write a short story, I can figure out where to send it. Uh, I no longer have an agent to handle short work. I mean, I, I guess I do if I wanted to bother somebody with it, but uh, I, it hasn't come up for a while. Any magazines that you're keeping an eye on still? I mean, because Asimov's is still out there. Uh, uh, Neotext is starting to do some stuff with short fiction. Sersova's over there, or, you know, publishing on a regular basis. Fangoria yeah. is back. Uh, is there is there a particular publication that you miss that's that's not around anymore? Hmm. Some of the ones I miss only lived for a short period of time. I mean. Asimov's and Analog are still there, and that's where I would go if I wrote a short story and said, oh, my, where shall I send it? I'd probably say, well, is this an Asimov's or an Analog story? Right. <laughs> and it's one or the other. Uh, or sometimes I write something that's just so off the wall, I'll send it to a literary magazine or, or some experimental magazine. Or if somebody comes up to me with an offer I can't refuse, I'll write him a story. Uh, uh, that's a, a challenge I throw out to the market out there. You come give me, try to make me an offer I can't refuse. Now, if somebody came to you tomorrow and said, hey, we want you to write a murder mystery or a romantic thriller or anything like that, is that is that something that you would ever consider or are you a science well, fiction writer? I'll tell you what, I could write a murder mystery because I have enjoyed reading them. I could not write a romantic novel because I've never enjoyed romance, or at least I've never read one that I enjoyed. So right. how would I start? Uh, I guess I would start by 
looking it up on a library book is, is how to write a romance novel. <laughs> and I could do A, B, and C and do that. Right. But it wouldn't be any good. I mean, uh, good writers come from good readers. That, you know, that's, that's rather profound uh, because, you know, a lot of people, there's that discussion back and forth of, you know, in order to be a good writer, you have to read. Uh, and some people kind of brush that advice off, but, uh, you know, I can certainly appreciate the importance of reading a lot of different things in order to bring all of that into the mix of what you're creating. History, you know, history books, biographies, you know, you mentioned an interest in science. You do a lot of the astronomy stuff. Is, is your reading list pretty varied or is it just, does it go in spurts depending on what kind of topic you're interested in? You mentioned the Oriental stuff earlier. Does it go in, in fits and starts on the things that you're interested in? Or are you casting a wide net all the time? You know, it's not even a net. It's basically what's on the table. I'll pick it up and start reading something. Uh, I rarely go out and try to find a book because I'm so completely crowded with books. Uh, I have my interests, and uh, some of them are just enthusiasms, and some are some are specialties that I've had all my life. And you know, it, like it would be difficult for me to pass by a critical book about Hemingway or Fitzgerald without picking it up and starting to read. And that's not because I think I'm going to publish something in Fitzgerald criticism. I probably never will. But uh, it's a hobby. And sometimes hobbies are really important to your reading activity. And you have called yourself a jack of all trades, master of none. How has that definition changed over the course of your career, or has it? Are you still the same Joe Haldeman writer that you were in '75? I know. I know your approach to writing is probably different. Your voice has probably evolved, but how you look at yourself as a creative person, as a, as an author, that Jack of all trades label, how much has that changed? Well, that part has not changed too much, but master of none has changed because I have to admit that like most writers I am a specialist there's a certain kind of a book that's a Joe Haldeman book and I am less enthusiastic about writing something different than I was when I was younger Uh, I want to write another Joe Haldeman book and I want to be the best one but you know do I want to write a James Blish book no no not really Uh, if I had to I could study a stack of James Blish books and try to write one. And there was a time when that had some appeal to it, but it no longer has any appeal. Now, if someone wanted to check out their first Joe Haldeman book, Hmm. where do do you start reading Joe Haldeman? Do you start with The Forever War? Or is there something that you would say is the best introduction to your writing? I would probably say the complete short stories, the complete short fiction of Joe Haldeman, which is 
Yeah, pretty big book. Best of. Oh, Best of, Gay Says, The Best of Joe Holdman. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten the title. <laughs> and that's that's still available. That's still in print. There's no, nothing you've done is out of print at this point, right? I think the, some of my stuff is technically out of print, but yeah. what does that mean nowadays? I mean, you can Google a title and find it. Uh, in, in the <laughs> chat, uh, Sci-Fi Snob says, we want to read another Joe Haldeman book. So I guess the one that you're working on now, uh, uh, whenever you get it, uh, finished and ready to publish. Uh, yeah. Let yeah, us that's... know and we'll, we'll <laughs> let people a... know about it. Yeah. Uh, and my next book probably will be uh, A Womanly Talent. No, no, I, I, I keep going to that because that's <laughs> actually a Anne McCaffrey title. But uh, A Woman of Talent yeah. It's the title I've been using. You mentioned uh, not throwing anything away. Are there snippets? Are there bits and pieces of stories that are still sitting somewhere that you'd like to revisit and and maybe do something with it? Or at this point, is it just whenever the mood strikes you and you're just going to do the next thing? Well, that's basically it. I mean, I I do have a folder sitting around of uh, crazy ideas. <clears throat> And over the years, I have taken paragraphs from that folder and turned them into stories or even whole books. Uh, and if I could find that folder, I might do one of those. I don't know. <laughs> it's a, nothing is easy to find around here. This is a lifetime full of uh, sort of more or less unfinished works <laughs> hanging around in various corners. Well, we do look forward to uh, when you finish that next book. We're gonna, we'll, we'll definitely circle back around and and talk about it, and and maybe right. we can maybe we can talk about it again and have you on and and go over what's next for you. So, sure, we're looking, definitely looking forward to it. The website joehaldeman.com. You can find them on Facebook, uh, and uh, we do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, sir. Sure. Anytime. Just look under our room. I might be there. All right. <laughs> and uh, for those of you in the chat, thanks very much for participating and leaving your comments and thoughts. If you are watching or listening the, to this show in replay, uh, we do invite your comments as well. The email address live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. Or you can leave a comment or uh, uh, just let us know what you think. Uh, you know, a thumbs up is is more than welcome. If you want to share the link uh, to your friends and peers, uh, we do appreciate that support as well. And of course, speaking of support, we do have a Subscribestar account for anyone who wants to support us monetarily. And we have the discount code over at SuperheroStuff.com, 10% off when you use the promo code sci-fi for me 10 that's going to do it for us today Rhonda you daily in here tomorrow and next week we've got some more interviews lined up live from the bunker thanks very much for watching folks this has been a presentation of sci-fi for me radio copyright 2020 by flaming dog media llc all rights reserved no portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of flaming dog media